Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Narendra Modi was elected a decade ago with a plan to make India a global power. Despite immense progress, there is much cause for criticism. In the latest of our democracy series, a look at why this year's election is so crucial for the country. And as a deadly virus spread through rural China, officials didn't want to admit it had reached their patches. A fearless doctor tried to raise the alarm. Our obituaries editor reflects on the life of Gao Yaoji, who in the 1990s discovered how AIDS was spreading. First up, there. I just came back from Rome and I miss London. Like, people, the food. The noise, the business. Transportation. Transportation, yes. <laughs> There's always someone around. There's always something going on. I'm standing right in the heart of the city of London, near Liverpool Street Station, and near a bunch of the tall buildings that you might recognise from London's skyline. It's a historically significant hub for the city's financial sector, you know, the bankers, the analysts. And on this busy weekday afternoon, I've come to speak with workers who have made London home. Excuse me. Hi. So I'm a journalist, I'm with The Economist. So I'm thinking about leaving the city. I'm just feeling a bit priced out. I didn't like the cold. What would you say is trying to convince me to stay? I can walk around at night and not feel worried, or, well, for me anyway. It's not as clean, but it's way better than New York. <laughs> I think it's just like a big melting pot city. It's dynamic, fantastic. But yeah, it's too expensive. Far too busy. Far too, Far too busy. Londoners, in particular, can have a pretty negative view of their city and its prospects. To me, we're overpopulated, really. Yeah, it's overpopulated. Everywhere you go in London, there's too many cars on the road. It's too expensive. I would love to live in London. I still live at home. It's too big. And if you have friends that live on the other side of the city, it's like a commute of one hour, one hour and a half. But not everyone agrees. Despite a lot of reasons that you might think London would be struggling, like the cost of living crisis, the aftermath of the pandemic, the fallout of Brexit, London is actually doing incredibly well. Andrew Miller is our special correspondent. Surprisingly well, in ways that have lessons for cities everywhere and reinforce the virtues of the kind of open, globalised city London is. Andrew, you're saying London is thriving. Convince me. Well, a lot of people look back on 2012 when London hosted the Olympic Games as kind of 
peak London. But I don't think that needs to be the case, actually. And it's still a magnet for hundreds of thousands of newcomers. It still attracts lots of foreign investment. It's still a great place to start a business. And it's a place with masses of opportunity. Now, you mentioned Brexit. Hasn't that dimmed London's shine at all? Yeah, I mean, London obviously has faced a lot of challenges over the course of 2,000 years, and Brexit is certainly one of them. And it has damaged the city of London, the financial heart of the metropolis and of the country. But if you look at the impact on the city, it's not been as dire as many people anticipated. Far fewer jobs have been lost and relocated away from the city than some people predicted. And just because of its sheer size, it's still a massive global financial hub. And meanwhile, another way that you would have expected Brexit to harm London is because of the shortfall of workers, immigrants from the EU who in previous decades had flocked to London. But in fact, that shortfall has been made up by immigrants from other parts of the world who've been allowed in under post-Brexit immigration policies. Tell me a bit more about that. It's one of the ironies of Brexit that a lot of people who voted for it did so in the hope of reducing immigration, but the result has actually been more immigration to Britain, only from places like India and Nigeria instead of from the European Union. And despite all the political rhetoric and sensitivity around immigration, Londoners themselves seem to be pretty positive about it. They're twice as likely as Parisians, for instance, to say that immigrants have had a a beneficial impact on their hometown. And now how about COVID? Yeah, I mean, London has also bounced back well from COVID, both compared with other bits of Britain and also with expectations. I mean, COVID did seem at one stage like a kind of existential threat to big cities. So people thought you know, no one was going to come to the office anymore and therefore the whole raison d'etre for a city like London was going to fall apart. And it's true that Londoners are, according to surveys, some of the most office-averse workers anywhere. The average worker in an office in central London is in the office for a paltry 2.3 days per week. But nevertheless, London has recovered strongly from COVID. Tourism is almost back to pre-pandemic levels. On some weekends, there are more people on the tube than there were in 2019. And I think if you sort of appraise London's situation today, the problems it faces are much more the results of its dynamism than they are of decline. Andrew, I live here and I'd argue that London's not all it's cut out to be. Aside from the social issues, travel is costing me an arm and a leg And I'm sorry, have you seen the rent prices? Yeah, all right, of course, London's a city of 9 million people. It's got lots of problems. It's got congested roads, it's got bad air pollution. It's got, as you know, a police force that is widely distrusted. And I agree with you that, above all, the biggest problem for Londoners is the cost of housing. And if you look at the figures, in 2020, the average house sold for over 13 times average London earnings which has almost doubled the ratio two decades before. Fewer and fewer people have been living in social housing, rents in the private sector are rocketing. And all this means that if you factor in housing costs, the poverty rate in London, which seems to be such a prosperous city, is actually above the average for the rest of England. And do you think that these issues can actually be tackled? Well, I think they can, Ori, and I think that 
the pandemic in its aftermath kind of offer an opportunity to tackle, at least in part, the housing crisis in a way that these big earthquakes in the history of the city, like the Great Fire of London and the Blitz did in the past. So one thing, for example, is that London's going to wind up with too much office space and in a city with too little housing, an obvious solution is to turn some of that commercial property where it's possible into residential property instead and create more homes. Another thing that urgently needs to be done, particularly if people are only coming into the office two or three days a week and are willing to therefore live further away, is to loosen some of the restrictions on building in the green belt around London, which, you know, have kind of prevented the city's natural growth for decades now. But overall, I think London 10 years ago could claim reasonably to be the capital of the world. And I don't know if I would make that case for it now, but it's certainly an example to the world, other cities in particular, about how to capitalise on the natural advantages of big, open, dynamic cities, places where people want to live, they want to work and they want to have fun. And London offers all of that. And the best thing that politicians can do for London and other cities like it is to let them grow, not stand in the way, harness their natural advantages for the benefit of the whole country. Okay, maybe, maybe you've just convinced me to stay. Angie, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, thanks so much for having me. It's home, so I love it. All near, wasn't we? Everything about it, it's lovely. 2024. The incumbent Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, leader of the BJP party, is looking to secure his third term in May. Last summer, on Independence Day, Modi promised that India was poised to become a major international player that shapes the world order. This was made possible, he said, thanks to its trinity of demography, democracy and diversity. Demography, democracy or diversity ki India has made major advances in the decade since Modi has been in power. But that progress has come along with much criticism of his approach. India in the time that Modi's been in power has gone from the world's 10th largest economy to the 5th. Lena Shipper is the South Asia bureau chief for The Economist, based in Delhi. 
it's emerged as a key partner in America's pushback against China. There's been a big infrastructure drive by the BJP government, which has been a cornerstone of their growth strategy. And they also claim to have cleaned up corruption, which was a big problem under the Congress party. Although there's a lot of debate as to whether that's actually the case. There's a very strong likelihood of Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, and his party, the BJP, being re-elected. Meanwhile, the opposition says that the soul of India is on the line if that happens. This government has also faced its fair share of criticism, right? Yeah, it has. There have been persistent allegations from critics, both at home and abroad, about repressing political dissent, marginalising India's Muslims, who are 15% of the population, so 200 million people. The government's pushed an ideology called Hindutva, which puts the Hindu religion at the centre of Indian identity. And there's been a rise of Hindu nationalism, both at home and also among Indians in the diaspora. BJP says that this is not about marginalising Muslims, but about restoring a national identity and an Indian culture which has been suppressed under centuries of imperial rule, first by the Muslim Mughals and then by the British. But opponents have accused the BJP of eroding democratic systems, undermining secular constitution, muzzling journalists and harassing critics. The BJP denies all this. And in recent months, there's also been a shadow cast over India's role as a key partner for America and the West's sort of general attempt to reign in China. In September, Canada accused Indian officials of being involved in the killing of a Sikh activist and Canadian citizen in Vancouver. More recently, America's Department of Justice published allegations that uh, an Indian official had been involved in planning a similar plot against an American citizen in New York. The Indian government has denied involvement, but on the American side, it said it's going to investigate the allegation. Despite all this, though, domestically, BJP leaders say Modi is still extremely popular. They feel very confident going into this election. So what about the state of Mr Modi's political opponents? Can they gain an advantage from all of this? So there are hundreds of political parties in India. It's an enormously diverse place. But the biggest and most significant national opposition comes from the Indian National Congress, which has ruled for 55 of the 76 years since India became independent. 26 opposition parties, including the Congress, formed a coalition in July, which they called the Indian National Developmental Inclusive Alliance, which is not very catchy. So they actually called it India, which is an acronym, very popular thing in India. Um, The opposition's main concerns were spelled out recently by Rahul Gandhi, a Congress parliamentarian and the de facto leader of the party who was given a two-year jail sentence in March, which was later suspended by the Supreme Court for mocking Mr Modi's name. Rahul Gandhi said, the concept of India, the concept of free elections, the concept of free speech, they are now under mortal threat. The opposition is thinking about this election in a fundamentally different way than it thought about any other election before this one, which is that India is now under attack. Which means that we have to realize that we are now fighting for the soul of India, which requires a different level of cooperation. But the coalition will probably struggle to match the electioneering firepower of the BJP. What are the issues that are weighing on people's minds as they make their decisions about who to vote for? India is an extremely diverse country. There are 1.4 billion people here with incredibly different needs, very different income levels, different religions. The BJP has been very popular for its welfare strategy, which has done things like dole out cleaner cooking gas to women in the countryside, 
extended the practice of direct cash transfers to very poor people in rural areas, food aid during the COVID pandemic, all of these things went down very well. At the same time, there's been a rise of ethnic divisions. Inequality has gone up as the country's got richer, which is a big concern, particularly for people at the bottom of the pyramid that haven't benefited to the same degree as some people at the top. And there are also some important issues that might not necessarily influence the average voter, but maybe should, like ethnic violence that's been taking place in the Manipur region in northeast India since May last year. How and where will this election ultimately be decided? Indian elections are famously difficult to predict. Polling in the country is very bad. But what we can say is that Modi continues to be very strongly backed by a large majority of Hindus. And the BJP just won three of four key state elections that took place in November last year, which signals a lot of support for the party, particularly in the northern parts of India, where it has its stronghold. And more than 160 million people were eligible to vote in these elections, which is a sixth of India's electorate. So even though state elections are not always necessarily indicative of national elections, we can say that the BJP can probably draw quite a lot of hope from this. Although, you know, in 2018, the Congress party won three key state elections just before the BJP swept the national election in 2019. Whatever happens in the election, the coming year could be critical for the future of India's democracy and for its relationship with the West. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Among the most closely watched and consequential votes this year will be that to elect a new American president. This week, our podcast on US politics, Checks and Balance, will be looking at Joe Biden's chances of re-election. It will be available to subscribers of Economist Podcast Plus today. Around about the late 80s, early 1990s, a strange disease began to appear in the deep countryside of China. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. Farmers found that they were getting too weak to work the fields. Their muscles were wasting away. They were getting strange rashes on their bodies and sores in their mouths. And strangest of all, people seemed to be disappearing at quite a rate. Some, when they realised they had this odd disease, just ran away. But local doctors, after a time, became concerned by it. And they called in Dr Gao Yaoji who was a very famous obstetrician and gynaecologist in her time, one of the first women to go to medical school in Henan province, and discovered with her first patient that the disease in question was AIDS. This was quite a shock. It was not that AIDS was not present in China, it was in the big cities but it was generally associated with either drug use or commercial sex. No one could see, and she could not think at first, how it could have reached this rural district. But then she discovered her first patient had had a blood transfusion, and there was the answer. AIDS had come in, in the blood. It had come in officially, in fact, because the policy in China to cope with a severe blood shortage there was to set up blood collection points all over the country and leave local government to run them for a profit. 
They very soon fell into the hands of blood bosses, as they were called, who made use of these blood collection centers to make the largest amount of money they could and who were very slapdash in their operations so that the centrifuges, which were separating the more valuable plasma from the blood, didn't get cleaned, nor did the syringes, nor the needles. At the end of a donor session, they would pump some of the blood with the plasma removed back into the patient. This particular blood was more or less mixed together in a pot, lots of different donors' blood. So the situation was ripe for um, a huge amount of infection. But, of course, the donors themselves didn't realize this. What they saw was a blood collection point that offered them 45 yuan, which was then about £3.50, for 800 cubic centimeters of blood. That, in fact, would feed their families for a week. But Gao Yaoji, Dr. Gao, or Grandma Gao, as she was known round the villages, decided she'd got to make this known and she complained extremely loudly to the local health authorities in Henan. And the local health authorities were horrified because they didn't want the word AIDS to get anywhere near their province. She was not allowed to speak to the press, she was watched and she was trailed, and sometimes she was physically chased out of villages by the local police. But she was a pretty determined woman. She'd had a hard life up to that point, although it had begun fairly comfortably in a family of fairly prosperous landowners in Shandong province. They had, however, been chased out of their home by communist guerrillas. In 1939, they'd had to go to Henan and start all over again. And she found when the Cultural Revolution broke out in 1966, that she was still viewed as a black element and a capitalist roader. And therefore, rather than being allowed to continue to practice gynecology in the main Henan hospital, she was beaten up, she was paraded through the streets with a papier-mâché hat on her head and her shoes around her neck. And she was then imprisoned in the hospital morgue among the dead. And she was made for seven years to clean hospital toilets rather than practice her skills. Eventually, she was allowed to go back. But the fact was that her imprisonment and general humiliation had brought her to the point of suicide. And it was only when she took a great handful of pills and then survived that she decided she would spend the rest of her life helping other people. And that was why, despite all the setbacks and all the resistance, she continued to go back to the villages. She was, however, continually harassed all the time and the worst thing for her was that she simply could not get this story out. The central government occasionally seemed to be supporting her, but then an awful lot of people in Beijing did not like what she was doing, so she couldn't really make any progress there. Eventually, the blood collection centres were banned and closed down, but she saw to her horror that the whole trade was going on in Henan's capital, Zhangdu, all the people, or many of them, who had fled the countryside because of AIDS there had gone to the city and were still selling their blood. Encountering all this resistance, she decided to approach a reporter from the New York Times 
who actually took her story to America and brought it to world attention. So at last she had a link to the world outside, and even if no one in China would listen to her, she cultivated her American friends, who included notably Hillary Clinton later on. And she was given an American award as soon as she was given that and applied to get a visa to go to the States to collect it. Her house was actually surrounded for 20 days by 50 police and she was not allowed to go to Beijing. They relented after a while. She did get to America in 2007. She didn't particularly want to be remembered in China or indeed anywhere else. She wanted the work to persist and the work to continue. But for herself, she felt that she just wanted her ashes to be scattered in the Yellow River. She would be as unknown, in fact, as those poor Henan farmers before she had discovered what had made them fall so sick. Anne Rowe on Gao Yao Ji, who's died aged 95. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jat Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Johnny Allen. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias and Benji Guy. We'll all see you back here tomorrow for The Weekend Intelligence. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.